Hello, I'm Alan Stanford, and welcome to Lear in Longford. You slave, you cur! I am none of these, my lord. I beseech your pardon. Your bandy looks with me, you rascal! Oh. Not only, sir, this your all licensed fool. How sharp of a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. Like a desert needs rain, like a town needs a name, eat your love. Blast the fogs upon thee! Like a drifter needs rain, hot moon, and eat your love. If thou art my fool, uncle, I'll have thee beaten for being old before thy time. Yield! Come before my father! Fly, brother! I need you. Thou unpossessing bastard. Let's forth the stocks. I would have all well beaten. Like a rhythm unbroken, like drums in the night, like sweet soul music, like... What need you want? Need your love. Shut up your doors. Who's there? True or false, it has made thee Earl of Gloucester. Here is better than the open air, but take it thankfully. Corruption in the place! Go seek the traitor Gloucester! Where's my son, Edmund? Edmund! We're here again in Longford, working our way through Shakespeare's most remarkable, powerful play, King Lear, and we're trying to bring it to life, looking at some of the most pertinent scenes in the play with the help of some students and teachers from four local schools, St Mel's College and Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallan Vocational School in County Leitrim, and here at Moyne Community School as well. Last week, we took a look at the principal storylines of the play. The play breaks into two very distinct storylines, the story of Lear and the story of Gloucester. We examined how Lear gave away his kingdom, which in real terms means giving away who he was, giving away kingship. He gave away the responsibility of running the kingdom, and in doing so, he gave away all the power that he had. And without realizing it, he had reduced himself to nothing a word which in the course of the play he really has to learn the meaning of. In the Gloucester story, we discovered another major catastrophe that can happen within a human environment, within the human circle. Somebody who has nothing wanting to get everything. Gloucester's bastard son, realizing he had nothing and understanding that the only way he was to get anything was to destroy his brother and his father, sets about doing so. So you have these two parallel stories, a story of a man with everything who reduces himself to nothing, and a story of a man with nothing who tries to get everything. Now, in this program, we're going to follow a little bit more the Lear story, the line that Lear follows in the central part of the play. And uh, the first thing we're going to examine is the dismissal of Lear by his daughters. Having given away all the land, he then decides to live with each of them in turn, month by month 
but he's made a provision for himself that he will always have 100 knights to travel with him. And 100 knights means their squires, their women, their kitchen attendants, everything else. So he's basically moving from palace to palace, carrying a small village with him. And it's not very pleasant for Goneril when she discovers that her castle is overrun by all these knights. And so she said to Lear, you can stay, and 50 of your knights can stay, but the other 50, out. Lear gets very angry and says, not good enough. That's not the deal we made. I'm leaving with everybody, and I'm going to go to your sister. And he goes to the sister, who he happens to meet in Gloucester's castle, because she's not at home, because she heard he was coming and got out quick. And he's at this point saying to her, I don't want to see your sister. I don't want to know about her. She's finished as far as I'm concerned. I'm staying here with you. Not what Regan particularly wants to hear. So we'll discover what happens when the father meets the two daughters in Act 2, Scene 4 of the play, in the dismissal of Lear. And uh, our actors in this particular scene, playing Lear will be Damien Radigan, playing Goneril will be Lorelei Fox Roberts, and Petrina Pronti will be playing Regan. Lear is in Gloucester's castle. He's decided to stay with Regan. Goneril suddenly arrives, and he lets her have it. He tells her exactly what he thinks of her. I pray thee, daughter, do not make me mad. I will not trouble thee, my child. Farewell. We'll no more meet, no more see one another. But yet thou art my flesh, my blood, my daughter, or rather a disease that's in my flesh, which I must needs call mine. Thou art a boil, a plague sore, or a bossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. But I'll not chide thee. Let shame come when it will. I do not call it. I do not bid the thunderbearer shoot, nor tell tales to thee of high judging Jove. Mend when thou canst. Be better at thy leisure. I can be patient. I can stay with Regan, I and my hundred knights. Not altogether so. I look not for you yet, nor am provided for your fit welcome. Give ear, sir, to my sister, for those that mingle reason with your passion must be content to think you old, and so, but she knows what she does. Now, in that moment, Lear has rather burnt his boots. He turns to one daughter and calls her a plague, sore, an embossed carbuncle. He basically informs her that she is not pleasant in his sight. He doesn't like her anymore and turns to the second daughter and says, I like you, I'm staying with you. And within a moment, Regan, the second daughter, has said, I don't think this is a good idea. And Lear is suddenly on a cleft stick. He's trapped now between two daughters, one of whom is insulted and the other who is not exactly welcoming. Let's pick it up. Is this well spoken? I dare avouch it, sir. What, 50 followers? Is it not well? What should you need of more? Yea, or so, Manny, sit that both charge and danger speak against so great a number. How, in one house, should many people under two commands hold amity? Tis hard, almost impossible. Why might not you, my lord, receive attendance from those that he calls servants, or from mine? Why not, my lord, if then they chance to slack ye, we could control them. If you will come to me, for now I spy a danger. I entreat you to bring but five and twenty. To no more will I give place or notice. Now, important point to notice. Goneril and Regan here are <coughs> both being very reasonable. They're both saying very reasonable things. 
50 followers, isn't that enough? What do you need for 100 when you've got 50? And anyway, how can 50 people in somebody else's household behave well with two bosses? Two bosses in one household doesn't work. It's crazy. It's impossible. It's a situation that can't work. What they've said to Lear is very, very true. Carry on. I gave you all. And in good time you gave it. Made you my guardians, my depositaries, but kept a reservation to be followed with such a number. What? Must I come to you at five and twenty? Reagan said you so. And speak again, my lord, no more with me. And she's very positive about <coughs> that. Lyra said, I gave you everything, and all I asked for is a hundred knights. And they are, as far as he's concerned, being very unreasonable and saying, you can't have a hundred. They've cut it down now from a hundred to fifty to twenty-five. They're now saying, or Regan is saying, not 100, not 50, 25. They're treating him a bit like a child. Carry on. Those wicked creatures yet do look well favoured when others are more wicked. And that's a hard one for him. He's insulted Goneril. He's now been told by Regan he ha she won't give him what he wants. He's now got to swallow his pride, turn round and say, well, you're not as bad as she is. Not being of the worst stands in some rank of praise. I'll go with thee. Die fifty, yet dot double five and twenty. And thou art twice her love. And that's a very important moment. Because in that moment, Lear is saying to everybody and to himself that he considers love to be something that has a numerical value. Because Goneril is offering fifty soldiers, fifty knights, and Regan is only offering twenty-five. Goneril must therefore love him twice as much as Regan. He still thinks love to be something that can be weighed in a scales or numbered by knights. Hear me, my lord. What need you five and twenty, ten or five, to follow in a house where twice so many have a command to tend you? What need one? And there you have it. In that short scene, they have reduced him from an ex-king with a hundred knights to a man <coughs> with that magic word, nothing. You don't even need one follower. They've taken everything away from him, and he's been reduced to nothing. And thank you for that. I uh, just want to point out that our readers this week come from St. Mel's College, but uh, since it's a boys' school, they're helped out in that scene by two girls from Moyne Community School here as well. So uh, a little round of applause for that. My name's Helene Brady and I'm from Moyne Community School. My favourite quote from King Lear is, I'm a foolish, fond old man. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. This quote refers to Lear's meeting with Cordelia at the end of the play. At this point, he has realised his wrongdoings and is prepared to show Cordelia that he will rep repent for his actions by letting her kill him. It also shows Lear's sense of shame for wrongdoing and the fact that he repents for what he did to Kent and Cordelia in the middle of his madness, he shows his distinct sayness and apologises to Cordelia. My name is Donald Ridge. I'm a student from Belvere College in Dublin. My favourite quote in King Lear reads, I have no way and therefore want no eyes. I stumbled when I saw. It is spoken by Gloucester in the company of his son Edgar. The Earl has just had his eyes gouged out by the ruthless Cornwall. The quote is ironic because it is only when he loses the use of his eyes that he realises that his once illegitimate son Edmund has been a traitor to him. Up until then, he was blind to this deceit. Good morning. 
My name is Colette Kenny and I'm from Carrigallon Vocational School in County Leitrim. Uh, Gloucester said to Regan, Oh madam, my old heart is cracked. It's cracked. There is great dramatic irony in these lines. Gloucester is telling Regan of his reaction to Edgar's supposed betrayal after she and her husband arrive at his castle. At this point, Gloucester foolishly trusts Regan and also believes what Edmund has told him about Edgar. This line tells us much about Gloucester, about his good ability and his vanity. Once Gloucester heard that Edgar allegedly complained about Gloucester's power to hold on to land and titles for as long as he wished, without passing them on to his sons, his pride is wounded. He cannot believe his son would question this steadfast tradition. Without waiting to question Edgar, Gloucester sends out an order for his immediate capture. Now he complains to Regan about his pain at his son's betrayal, not realising that Edgar is in fact his good and loyal son, and Edmund is the one who has betrayed him. My name's Shane Sorhan and I'm from uh, St Mel's College, Longford. And my favourite quote from King Lear is, As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. These are Gloucester's words in Act 4, Scene 1. He is wandering the heath after being blinded by Cornwall and Regan for his loyalty to Lear. He has also been told about Edmund's treachery and re- realises that he has be- banished the son who loved him most. It's no wonder that he gives way to despair and begins to question whether there is justice in the universe or not. This is one of the main themes of the play. At this stage he is contemplating ending his life. He feels that there is no divine justice. Only the sport of cruel gods who delight in people suffering and reward people who are cruel. He will change his view later and pray to the ever-gentle gods. Of course, at the end of the play he dies, but he is a better man than the one we met at the start. Although blind, he has achieved a clearer vision of the world. Edgar has helped him to do this. My favourite line? I suppose there are two. As flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. But my other favourite line in the play is never, 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 never. That wonderful expression of eternity. It's so complete, it's endless, that line. Our next scene comes from Act 3, Scene 4 of the play. Uh, Lear has gone out into the storm, gone out onto the heath. Remember, very important to remember, that Gorald and Regan never throw him out. He's never thrown out of anywhere. He always goes by his own choice because he believes he still can. He's out in this most ferocious storm and still thinking, still behaving as if he had power. He's trying to have power over the storm. He says to it, blow winds and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow you cataracts and hurricanes spout. He's telling the storm what to do. The storm is drenching him. It's wiping him out. On top of all that, he's discovered a new word, and the word is need. He's discovered this word because it was presented to him. What need you, five and twenty, ten or five? What do you need? He's got to now discover what he does need to be who he is, to answer his question, who is it that can tell me who I am? What is Lear? What is the essential Lear? This is the journey he, uh, of discovery he's making. And out in the storm, he begins to address the question of what humanity is and what it needs. Poor naked wretches, wheresoever you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I had taken too little care of this. Take physic pomp. Expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. 
that thou may shake this superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Now in that, he's recognizing need. He's pitying the poor naked wretches that he's never pitied before. I've taken too little care of this. When I was king, I did nothing about it. Now I begin to realize what true need is, that pomp and wealth needs to share itself with those who are suffering and poor and hungry. And nature at that particular moment brings him face to face with the perfect example of the poor naked wretch. The wonderful ironic dramatic trick being that it's not really a poor <coughs> naked wretch, it's actually Edgar from the Gloucester plot in disguise hiding. Fathom and half, fathom and half, poor Tom. Come not in here, Uncle, here's a spirit. Help me, help me. Give me thy hand. Who's there? A spirit, a spirit. He says his name's poor Tom. What art thou that dost grumble in the straw? Come forth. Away, the foul fiend follows me. Through the sharp hawthorn blows the wind. Whoosh. Go to thy cold bed and warm thee. Didst thou give all to thy daughters? And art thou come to this? Who gives anything to poor Tom, whom the foul fiend had led through fire and through flame, through ford and whirlpool, or bog and quagmire, that had laid knives under his pillow and halters in his pew, set ratsbane in his porridge, made him proud of heart to ride on a bay-trotting horse over four-inch bridges, to course his own shadow for a traitor. Bless thy five wits. Tom's a cold. Now the importance in that scene is his realisation about need, his realisation about poverty. But he's still harping on the daughters. He's still going on and he says to, to, to Mad Tom, who is Edgar, was it your daughters that did this to you? He can only see things through that perspective that it is his daughters that made him suffer. The mind is beginning to go. But he also realises something about need. He makes a discovery about what is the essential man. And I think this is the pivotal <coughs> moment in the play. In every play of Shakespeare, there always seems to be that one moment that is the true centre in heart. You can have different opinions about it, but mine is a speech that comes shortly after this. When he looks at Edgar, Mad Tom, with the realization that that is all that man is. A poor, bare, forked animal that has nothing. That when you strip mankind down to its essentialness, it is the poor, naked wretch who owns nothing, who has nothing. And at that moment, that's what Lear wants to become. At that moment, he tries to tear his own clothes off. He says, I want to be like this. I want to be that pure. At that moment in the play, Lear has traveled from being a king all the way down to being nothing more than a man. And I would like to say thank you to Damien as Lear, Owen Minahan as Edgar, Neil Brennan as The Fool, and Brendan Masterson as Kent. And here is Gillian O'Neill from Skolwira, and she's going to give us some advice on answering a typical question on King Lear. In the play, King Lear moves from a position of centrality to one of loneliness and isolation. The purpose of the introduction is to give your opinion on the statement in the question and hint at the different aspects of the play you might refer to. For example, the play King Lear centres around its protagonist's movement from a king used to total dominance to a frail man. I believe it's true to say that Lear does indeed move from a position of centrality to one of loneliness and isolation. However, I believe Lear goes further and he moves beyond his isolation back to a position of some power. In your answer, you should refer to the question constantly. 
the focus of the next paragraphs will be the centrality of Lear. In Act 1, Scene 1, line 94, Cordelia is after saying she has nothing to say to her father and he uses threatening language towards her to assert his control. Mend your speech a little lest you may marry your fortunes. When he faces opposition, he will not tolerate it and flies into a rage. You could also mention that despite what Lear has done to Cordelia and Kent, they remain loyal to him. As Lear inspired such loyalty, we can presume that he had a very central role as king and father. After establishing how Lear was a central figure, you would then move on to his loneliness and isolation. I'm using his state of mind to illustrate how lonely he felt. It is easiest to do this in a chronological order. In Act 1, Scene 4, Line 228, we are given an indication that Lear is going mad as he asks, Does any here know me? This is not Lear. Lear no longer can identify himself as he has lost all the power that he once had. As the fool illustrates, Lear is now but a shadow of his former self. Another episode you could refer to is when Lear finds Kent in the stocks. In Elizabethan times, the stocks were more than just a form of punishment. They were a symbol of powerlessness. When Lear finds his servant in the stocks, he is on the way to acknowledging that he is powerless. He has nothing and is nothing without his kingship. After this episode, Lear no longer knows his place in the world, or even his own daughter, as he says to Regan. Regan, I think you are. Lear's isolation from society furthers as Regan and Goneril tell him he doesn't need his guards. What need one? After this, Lear exclaims, Fool, I shall go mad. In his madness, Lear becomes isolated and lonely. You could then move on to the storm scene in Act 3, Scene 2. You must remember that the storm symbolises the tempest in Lear's mind. He suffers as a result of the ingratitude of his daughters, so much so that he can't feel the fury of the storm. Lear comes to see himself as a poor, infirm, weak and despised old man. Because of these traits, he's now cut off from society. In Act 3, Scene 2, Line 59, Lear still sees himself as more sinned against than sinning. Lear's isolation may be a result of not coming to terms with what he had done. However, Lear begins to think of others and tells the fool to get out of the storm. Lear moves from his isolation in the reconciliation scene with Cordelia. Lear recognises his own faults and says, I am a very foolish, fond old man. Even though she knows his faults, Cordelia still loves him and he is no longer isolated. He has reached his utopia in Act 5, Scene 3, when he realises he no longer wants to be a king, but a father to his daughter. So we live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. Lear loses his function as father when Cordelia dies. He too dies, but as a result of his isolation and loneliness, he's now a better man in comparison to whom he once was. It's vital to write a conclusion. You should refer to the question again, give a comprehensive summary of your answer, and outline how you have accomplished what you set out to do in the introduction. In the course of the play so far, the Lear story, you can imagine as a great staircase. That Lear started at the top of the staircase, sitting on a throne, sitting on the purple cushion with a crown on his head. He was king of everything. He gave it up. He split the kingdom. 
And from that point on, it's as though he starts to move down that staircase, losing status all the way down. He gives away his land. He gives away his daughters. He gives away his power. He gives away his authority. He loses his retinue. His knights are taken away from him. Lower and lower he goes. He begins to lose his sanity. He loses his reason. He gets lower and lower down that staircase until eventually all he's left with it is the realization that he is himself no better than the poor naked wretch that Mad Tom is. He's come almost to rock bottom, but he's got one more step to go down before he hits the bottom, and that is the descent into madness. When all reason has left him, and that great first half of the play, that long staircase down, the descent into madness, completes when he's been taken off the heath by the loyal Gloucester and brought into a little shed, a small hovel, and all that's in there, the only thing he has left in the world is himself, a fool, a madman, and one loyal friend, Kent. And in that hovel, the madness becomes complete. And Shakespeare demonstrates it by having Lear try to put his daughters on trial in his mind. This mock trial is the final loss of sanity. It's gone after this moment. And he begins. I'll see their trial first. Bring in their evidence. Thou robed man of justice, take thy place. And thou, his yoke fellow of equity, bench by his side, you are of the commission, sit you too. And so he takes these three people that are with him, the robed man of justice, the naked wretch covered in nothing but a bit of cloth. The yoke fellow of equity, the equal to the madman, is the fool. So he equates the fool with the madman and puts them together. And as an afterthought almost, oh yeah, to Kent, you might as well join in as well. Let us deal justly. Sleepest or wakest, thou jolly shepherd, thy sheep be in the corn. And for one blast of thy minikin mouth, thy sheep shall take no harm. Interesting that. It's almost a, a parody, or it's an early version of a well-known uh, later nursery rhyme. Uh, Little boy blue, come blow up your horn, the sheep's in the meadow, the cow's in the corn. It's, uh, it uses it quite specifically. If you look after your sheep, if you blow your horn, if you heed the warnings, your sheep will be okay. If you don't heed the warnings, you lose them. You end up with nothing. Shakespeare never wastes an opportunity to remind us of the main theme. Purr. The cat is grey. And that just shows he's mad. Arraign her first. Tis Goneril. I here take my oath before this honourable assembly. She kicked the poor king, her father. Very important point there. She never kicked him. He's lying. But as far as he's concerned, she's the lowest of the low. So he'll treat her as such. Come hither, mistress. Is your name Goneril? She cannot deny it. Cry you mercy. I took you for a joint stool. The fool is trying to help Lear by playing along with the game. And here, another, whose warped looks proclaim what store her heart is made on. Stop her there. Arms, arms, sword, fire, corruption in the place. False justicer, why hast thou let her scape? Bless thy five wits. Oh, pity, sir. Where is the patience now that you so oft have boasted to retain? My tears begin to take his part so much, they mar my counterfeiting. And at that point, Edgar can no longer even continue to play Mad Tom. He is, feels such pity for the king, he actually comes out of character and says, this is, this is too terrible, I can't cope with this. The little dogs and all, Trey, Blanche and Sweetheart, see, they bark at me. Which I think is one of the most 
poignant, one of the saddest moments of the play. At that point, even in his own imagination, he feels that he is totally alone. Even in his mind, his own dogs are barking at him. It's one of the saddest moments that the play has to offer. Another round of applause for our readers. My name's James Keogh from St. Mel's College, Longford, and one powerful image in King Lear is the image of the storm. There are four storm scenes in Act 3 of King Lear. A storm always represents something powerful, wild and destructive. In the case of King Lear, it is a real tempest and a metaphorical storm in the king's mind. The build-up to the storm is the incident with Cordelia and Kent, followed by the rejection by Goneril and Regan. In the storm, Lear is stripped of the trappings of power. As he moves towards madness, he achieves valuable insights. He sees the corruption, the falsity and the flattery that he couldn't see when he was in power. He sees the huge inequalities in societies and develops an empathy and understanding for others. When he strips himself of his clothes, Lear leaves behind his former pride and artificial life. He is now at the level of the poorest of his subjects. In the calm after the storm, he is reconciled with Cordelia. I'm Neve McGlade from Mine Community School. I have chosen I Did Her Wrong as my favourite quotation because this is probably our first real insight into Lear's dreaded realisation of exactly what he has done to Cordelia, the daughter he loved the most. As an audience, this evokes um, huge sympathy as it shows a transformation in Lear from a domineering, rash, arrogant leader to a small, lost and lonely figure. This quotation is also an inkling of what is yet to come. And our next scene comes from Act 4, Scene 6. At this point, the two storylines that I mentioned, the, the, the two divided storylines, begin to meet up. Gloucester meets the mad King Lear, the blind Gloucester. This Glo by this time in the play, Gloucester has been blinded and is walking around in that same blasted heath, being led by his own son, Edgar, who he conceives as Mad Tom. So we have a scene where the mad Lear meets the blind Gloucester. Both of them have learnt to see in new ways. Gloucester has lost his eyes in order to see the world as it really is, to see the truth in situations, to see that it was his bastard son Edmund who actually destroyed him. Lear has lost his mind in order to see humanity as it really is, to actually discover what the truth is of the human condition, and that in order to find yourself properly, you must become, that magic word again, nothing. And this is a case where the madman meets the blind man, and they discuss, or at least we see them seeing truthfully for the first time. Lear begins to see the way human behavior really is. He begins to see that people are only what is inside, not what is outside. It is not their position, their power, the number of soldiers they have, the clothes they wear that makes them what they are. It is who they are to find the inner person, to find the person who has nothing, the real you, the real Lear. 
So in this section, Damien will read Lear again, and Owen will continue as Edgar, and we're joined by Oliver McKenna, who'll be reading the role of Gloucester. What? Art mad? A man may see how this world goes with no eyes. Look with thine ears. See how yon justice rails upon yon simple thief. Hark in thine ear. Change places and handy dandy. Which is the justice and which is the thief? Thou hast seen a farmer's dog bark at a beggar. Aye, sir. And the creature run from the cur. There thou mayest behold great image of authority. A dog's obeyed in office. Thou rascal beetle, hold thy bloody hand. Why dost thou lash that whore? Strip thine own back. Thou hotly lust to use her in that kind for which thou whipst her. The userer hangs the cozener. Through tattered clothes, small vices do appear. Robes and furred gowns hide all. And let's take that point. Robes and furred gowns hide all. A dog's obeyed in office. You can put anybody in a position of authority, put a uniform on them, put a crown on their head, give them a, a staff of office, give them a title, and we do what they tell us. He tells the beadle, stop beating the whore because you lust after her for the very reason that you're whipping her. In other words, most of authority, in Lear's perception, is a load of rubbish. Most of it is a lie. Turn the world on its head and you'll find that the justice and the thief are no different one from the other. Plate sin with gold and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags, a pygmy's straw doth pierce it. None does offend, none I say, none. I'll label them. Take that of me, my friend, who have the power to seal the accuser's lips Get thee glass eyes, and like a scurvy politician, seem to see the things that thou dost not. To seem to see the things that thou dost not, like a scurvy politician. If you look into any newspaper today, or look at any television news broadcast, or any political program, you'll see that very same thought being said. Scurvy politicians who seem to see the things they do not. Scurvy politicians have a wonderful ability to see things that are not. Plate sin with gold and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags, a pygmy's straw doth pierce it. Shakespeare's time, 400 years ago, exactly the same things were going on, exactly the same things were being talked about. The rich and the powerful seem to get away with it, the poor and the meek seem not to. The injustice of the world never changes, but Shakespeare's talking about it, and Lear, for the first time, Lear sees it and understands it. He sees the world for what it truly is. And what it truly is has sent him mad. Now, 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 now. Pull off my boots. Harder, harder, so. Oh, matter and impertinency mixed. Reason and madness. Edgar sees it. Everything he says he's saying is a madman. But everything he says is true. If thou wilt weep my fortunes, take my eyes. I know thee well enough. Thy name is Gloucester. Thou must be patient. We came crying hither. Thou knowest the first time that we smell the air, we wall and cry. I will preach to thee, Mark. And with that simple phrase, he sums up exactly what he feels. That the only thing we have left to do is weep. We come into the world crying. And by the time we discover what the world really has to offer, 
all that's left for us to do is to cry. Thank you. I'm Julie Sheridan from Mine Community School and my favourite quotation is I am a foolish, fond old man. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I have chosen this particular quotation which is spoken by King Lear in Act 14.7. He falls to his knees before Cordelia and tells her if she is poison for him, he will drink it. Lear admits he has been a foolish old man. He is truly sorry for all his wrongdoings, especially for his rash treatment of his beloved Cordelia. This is my favourite quotation from the entire play and it evokes immense sympathy in me for the ill-treated king. He is genuinely sorry and is prepared to further pay for his actions. And now with some ideas on approaching a typical question on King Lear, here's Jared Griffin from Loretto, Stevens Green, Dublin. The question I will address is, is the character of Lear more sinned against than sinning? I would feel free to discuss the play looking at it from both sides of the fence. Do I feel obliged to discuss all of Lear's failings, or all of his good points for that matter? You do not have to take a firm stand, although I'd probably recommend it for clarity's sake, especially towards the end of the essay. But the original question, we have to look at his sins first. One, irresponsibility. Two, his vanity. Three, anger. Four, his blindness. After discussing his sins, we'd also have to discuss the counter-argument which is that he was once a good king. That's your first point. Two, his daughters exploit and torment him. Three, he learns by his mistakes too late. Four, the storm scene. Five, his enlightenment. Six, the loss of Cordelia. And finally, the transformation or concluding paragraph at the end. But firstly, let's look at his irresponsibility. The notion that a divinely appointed king, God's deputy on earth, as Shakespeare's audience would have believed, uh, resigning his position in kingdom so that he could unburdened crawl to death is the first point we may want to consider. The idea of splitting a kingdom in such a callous way without meditating on the implications of such a decision would have seemed appalling to Shakespeare's audience. The main reason for this is, of course, that a kingdom without a strong unified leadership, i.e. one king, would have been considered weak or at least weakened and perceived as fair game for an invading force. Remember that the kingdoms of Scotland and England had just been reunited under James I. So the idea that this could suddenly be broken apart again would have horrified Shakespeare's audience. Second point, of course, is his vanity and his love test when he asks, which of you, shall we say, doth love us most? There's Goneril and Regan who are only too willing to profess their undying love for their father. Both sisters know how to deceive their father and tell him what he wants to hear, while Cordelia cannot heave her heart into her mouth. I would think about all the other sincere words of truth and wisdom Cordelia uses as defence against his vanity. This, of course, leads us to Lear's next great faux pas, which is his anger. Lear is impetuous and vengeful in his anger, again without any understanding of the potential repercussions of his actions. He curses Cordelia and Kent, who are arguably the two people that love him most. Both are banished in a flash of white rage, leaving it difficult for us as an audience to empathise with Lear at this point. His final sin, his fourth sin, is his blindness. While his blindness leads him to command that the third most opulent part of his kingdom be digested between his two daughters, he is blind to the fact that all of his powers have now been reduced to nothing. Lear's blindness to the new position he has unwittingly created for himself, especially in regard to the number of knights he will have to relinquish control over, is not something that we can feel duly sorry for. The counter-argument is the fact that Lear was once a good king 
and we must also take his age into consideration. An important aspect of Lear's character that we cannot overlook is the fact that he is a man upward of four score years. Having reached such a ripe old age as king, without being deposed or murdered, it is quite reasonable to suggest that he was once a good king who was well liked, if not loved, by his subjects. Despite Lear's angry dismissal of those close to him, they continue to follow him. Cordelia plans to lead a rebellion from France, while Kent disguises himself as a lowly servant for the purpose of protecting Lear from Goneril and Regan. Lear's daughters exploit and torment him. This is probably the most important point when dealing with the counter-argument. When Lear perceives a most faint neglect of late, it is because his daughters are deliberately out to torment him. The fool, who is Lear's personal source of comic relief, does little to soften the blow, as he tells his master the truth, no matter how hard it hurts. The next point is that Lear learns by his mistakes too late, and the more he learns of his mistakes, the more cruelly he is treated. This again is the key to understanding whether he deserves the extent of the punishment meted out to him. His rage against the storm can be seen as a response by nature to the wrongs that Lear is suffering, the storm mirroring the tempest in the old king's mind. It is at this moment that our deepest sympathies lie with the ageing king. The next point is that Lear's madness also leads to enlightenment as he exchanges the fool for Edgar's or poor Tom's moral guidance. It is impossible not to feel the enormity of the king's fall from grace at this point. He also understands during the mock trial how a dog's obeyed an office, while his poorest subjects have always suffered without him even being remotely aware of their ordeals. Oh, I have taken too little care of this. Take physic, pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. Shakespeare is deliberately making us admire Lear, making us feel that it is only right to think of him as more sinned against than sinning. Unlike other characters that have committed wrongs, Lear is at least capable of enlightenment. Another point is the loss of Cordelia, and when we consider the effect that this has on Lear. He knows he has abused those closest to him, and he has come full circle, and he's overcome his vanity, anger, blindness, pride, only to lose the woman who has stayed loyal and true to the very end. Her death breaks the king's heart, and we are left feeling for the king more than any other character in the course of the play. Finally, the transformation of Lear, and our con concluding paragraph. Lear's transformation in the course of the play and Shakespeare's masterful ability to get to the very essence of human nature is such that he makes us feel that Lear is a man first and foremost and secondly that he is a man more sinned against than sinning. We as an audience from serious reservations about Lear's character at the beginning of the play feel the same. It is quite obvious that no other character that commits wrongs in the course of the play has the capacity to undergo the same transformation or plummet the same emotional depths as Lear is forced to explore. Lear's greatest weakness is his age and the errors of judgment that spring from being in a position of authority for too long. He is certainly a man that we can empathise with as a frail man who was more sinned against. He was just an old man who wanted to rest weary limbs in a kind nursery. The mistakes he makes in going about his retirement were deeply flawed, but his punishments are certainly disproportionate to the crimes he committed. Lear has been described as the ultimate tragedy of despair, which sounds very bleak, but I'm inclined to agree with it. In other tragedies, there are sort of, you know, sort of slight payoffs on the way and, and, and sort of justice is done. And For example, in Macbeth, you know, uh, Macbeth, who, who is not a bad man, but a, a man who just allowed his own demons to take him over. Uh, the, the tragedy concludes with his own death, but at least there's the hope of a future with, with Malcolm. 
Hamlet, a tragedy of a man caught up in his own inactivity, a man who, who doesn't take responsibility when he finally does, it's too late, and ends up with his own death. But at least there's a future. You know, Fortinbras will take over. In Lear, it doesn't happen that way. Lear is a man who believes that for him to have purpose, for him to exist, he must be king. He is not a man, but a king. He's got to learn that a king is only a man with responsibility. Once you give away that responsibility, once you give away the authority, you have given away kingship. You are now just a man. So Lear has to go on an enormously long journey to discover what his true nature is. And it's a journey down to nothing. Now, at the end of the play, you have this wonderful moment when Lear says, come on, we're going to go to prison, we're going to be happy together, we'll just live out our lives in a jail cell, and we'll mock everything around us, and we'll be happy because we'll be together and it'll be lovely. And your heart is going, oh yeah, let it be like that, yeah, let it be like that. But Lear has another lesson to learn. He has to learn ultimate grief. He has to learn what it is to have absolutely nothing. And at the moment when he was given that last possession, the love of his child, that must be taken away from him to let him come to his natural conclusion of absolute nothingness, to reach that point of stillness and silence and emptiness where you are nothing, at which point you're dead. My name is Rachel O'Callaghan. I really enjoyed the play King Lear as you're always kept on your toes reading it. I like the way Shakespeare has created such in-depth characters that we get to analyse the more we read. The character of the fool is really intriguing, as there are many reasons for the purpose of him. As well as guiding Lear, he is the one person who spells out to Lear what is happening as Lear is blinded by the lies. I am a fool, thou art nothing, is a key quote of the fools, which shows that even though the fool would not have been given a lot of respect in those times, he's saying that Lear is below that. There is another theory of the fool being Lear's alter ego, and that he leaves abruptly during the play as Lear begins to slowly lose his mind. This I find intriguing. I'm Elizabeth McHugh and I'm a Leaving Cert student in Santa Sabina, Sultan. Something that intrigues me about King Lear is the quote, Eyes aren't the source of sight in the play, it is knowledge that leads to sight and further insight in King Lear, unquote. This is all seen through imagery and reference made to sight and blindness and the timing of scenes in the King Lear from day to night. The darkness and daytime scene changes, symbolising a physical and mental blindness scene. The blindness imagery are key factors to both the main and subplot, where in both cases a father is blinded by their child. Although it is at a later stage in the subplot, Gloucester must lose his sight after being blinded to gain insight and the truth regarding Edmund and Edgar. Gloucester refers to when, quote, madmen must lead the blind, unquote, and this ironic description of a state allows us to see his insight. I really like the way Shakespeare uses sight and blindness to develop the plot and subplot of King Lear. My name is Sinead Sweeney and I'm from Moyne Community School. My favourite quote in King Lear is, I am a man more sinned against than sinning, Act 3, Scene 2. This quote makes us deeply empathise with King Lear, as no matter what mistakes he has made or what sins he has committed, he doesn't deserve the cruelness and heartlessness that his evil daughters inflicted on him. He is an old man, a king and a father, and is in no fit state of mind to care for or think for himself. Leah suffered the worst and most brutal filial ingratitude at the hands of his daughters, Goneril and Regan. As his children, they should have cared for Leah and not sinned against him. I think this quote sums up the whole play. Although Leah has sinned, 
He doesn't deserve the sins committed against him. The quote draws attention to this fact and allows you to sympathise with Leah and realise the true evilness of Goneril and Regan. And now we come to our King Lear quiz. And uh, with a representative from each school, we have from St Mel's, Cormac Smith. From Moyne, we have Theresa Mulligan, Alma Mollohan from Skolwira. And from Carrigallon, we have Lisa Reynolds. Welcome. Now, I'm going to ask each one of you a question in turn. And this is a who says what to who round. So first of all, Cormac, listen to this quote. And of my land, loyal and natural boy, I'll work the means to make thee capable. Who is speaking and to whom? Uh, Gloucester to Edmund. Correct. <laughs> and now, Therese, have a listen to this. How chance the king comes with so small a number? Thou hast been set in the stocks for that question, thou hast well deserved it. We'll set you to school to an end to teach thee there's no labouring in the winter. Which two characters were speaking there? Fool and Kent. Correct. <laughs> and now, Alma, have a listen to this one. Nature in you stands on the very verge of her confines. You should be ruled and led by some discretion that discerns your state better than you yourself. And who is talking to who there? Um, Goneril to Lear. I give you one point. It's Regan to Lear. And finally, Lisa from Carrigallon. Have a listen to this one. Thou art a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. But I'll not chide thee. Now, who is speaking to who in that scene? Leo. <laughs> to who? Um, Goneril. Well done. You got me. Now, this is our quick fire round. Get your fingers on the buzzers. Okay, first to buzz gets to answer. First question How old <laughs> am I? <laughs> How old is Kent? Uh, 48. Well done. You were, you were right. That was Cormac from St. Mel's. Next question. And let me finish the question. What condition is put upon Lear's return to Goneril? That was Therese. Uh, that he reduced his knights to 50. Well done. <laughs> How many of his train can Lear keep if he stays with Regan? And that was Cormac. Uh, 25. Well done. At the end of Act 2, in the play, what's the weather like? Somebody was very fast there, Therese, I think. Uh, stormy. Well done, yes, it's a storm. <laughs> According to Edmund, what does Edgar want to do to Gloucester? That was Cormac again. Uh, murder him. Well done. <laughs> Act 2, scene 2 of the play, which I'm sure you know intimately. What time do Kent and Oswald arrive at Gloucester's Palace? <laughs> <laughs> I've got two people buzzed at exactly the same time. I'm going to give it to Alma. 
Um, Dawn. Dawn, well done. Good dawning to be friends. So, even though Alma managed to get that one, the winner of the round is Cormac from St. Bell. Still well done to St. Bell. Now, on next week's programme, we're going to be taking a look at the Gloucester storyline and the rise to power of Edmund. And uh, next week, the students of Carrigallon Vocational School will be reading the parts for us. So thank you all, and join me next week. That was Lear in Longford. The production team was Catherine Brennan, Angus McAnally, Siobhan Mannion and Kevin Reynolds. On sound were Tony Lyons and Eddie O'Halloran. And our special thanks to the teachers, staff and students of St Mel's College and Skullwira in Longford, Carrigallon Vocational School in County Leitrim and Moyne Community School. Not only, sir, this your all-licensed fool. How sharp as a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. When the desert needs rain, like a town needs a name, I need your love. Blast and fogs upon thee. Like a drifter needs rain, hot moon, I need your love. If thou art my fool, uncle, I'll have thee beaten for being old before thy time. Yield! Come before my father! Fly, brother! I need you. Thou unpossessing bastard. Let's forth the stocks! I would have all well finished. Like a rhythm unbroken, like drums in the night, like sweet soul music, like... What need? What? Shut up your doors! Who's there? True or false, it has made thee Earl of Gloucester. Here is better than the open air, but take it thankfully. Corruption in the place! Go seek the traitor Gloucester! Where's my son, Edmund? Edmund!